What a wonderful time in worship we've already had this morning. Now we're going to have an opportunity to worship the Lord in, in word. So open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under in the back of a chair in the row in front of you. It's page 1055. So take it out, follow along, and see what God's word has to say. As we continue in our study of Matthew 24 and 25, this end times teaching, it uh, is meant to be practical. First to the original audience and to all of Christ's disciples down through the ages. And today is no exception. Today is an extremely practical text. And it's especially practical to those who come every Sunday or most Sundays who are not yet disciples of Jesus Christ. There really is no more practical, important, or serious message than the very message I'm going to preach today. And that is why Jesus Christ and the apostles in the New Testament repeat this kind of theme regularly. The message that Christ preached to his disciples, I want to preach to you who are disciples of Christ. And it's a gospel message. A gospel message. In fact, it's more than that. It's a warning message to disciples of Jesus Christ. We think so many times that the warning messages that Christ gives or the Bible gives are for people who do not claim to be disciples of Christ. But frequently, often, repeatedly, in multiple places in the New Testament, the warning is not given to those who don't claim to be disciples. The warning and the gospel is given to those who do claim to be disciples, those who would show up on church week in and week out on a Sunday morning. Us. So this isn't a message primarily for us to take out there. It's a message for us to hear. This is what some would say is inside baseball. You know, if you're a part of the team, you're a part of the group, you, you understand the terms, this is for you. And I would say specifically that this is a message for the children and teens here this morning who have been brought up in many senses in this church. This message is specifically for you and as children or teens who are being raised in Christian families with Christians who claim to know Jesus Christ and live that out, you need to pay attention this morning. Now, I didn't take that away from adults, all right? But kids especially. The sermons get sometimes longer than you can bear, not just for kids, but for adults. But anyway, but stick with it and hold through it and pay attention. This is important, and that is because not all who profess to be Christians actually possess eternal life. Not all who profess to be Christians, not all who are members of churches, not all who are a member of this church, not all who come to church every Sunday, not all who sing the songs with enthusiasm truly possess eternal life. And this is a vital, relevant, practical, and important message this morning. Before we read the scripture, let's pray together. Father, the gospel is good news to the sinner. It's good news to the slave of sin. It's good news to the person held in the bondage of sin. It's good news to the person who claims to be set free but has not yet been set free, the one who is pretending, the one who knows they're pretending. It's good news. And as the good news is proclaimed this morning, 
we ask you that you would be merciful in bringing new life, causing hearers to repent and believe and be born again. And we ask that you would do this work through your spirit, through your word, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 25, we're gonna read verses, I'll read verses one through 13, so please follow along. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom. Also translated, here comes the bridegroom. Never mind. Um, Come out to meet him. (laughs) All right, let's get serious. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is God's gracious and merciful revelation to us. May we listen to it this morning. Our theme is the same as last week, as this sermon is a continuation of the sermon that Jesus gave with the same theme, King Jesus answers the question of his coming. King Jesus answers the question of his coming. In his last week, the Passion Week, we're getting very close to our celebration of that in our own calendar, Christ gives this final sermon. It is a prophetic message, but a prophetic message not intended, as Matthew Henry writes, to gratify the curiosity of his disciples, but to guide their consciences and conversations, their lives and their minds. This is written to discourage end times speculation, end times curiosity, and to give real answers to real questions. So back in 24, verses 36 through 51, in the message, Christ had reached the question of his return. When will you come? When will you come again? This is a reference to his second coming. He's already there the first time. He's he's right there with them. And what he says is, first, no one knows the day or the hour So no predictions for the timing of his coming are allowed. If you want one thing to take away from this, you can write in bold letters, no predictions allowed. Don't give predictions. Don't listen listen to people giving predictions. Stay away from predictions. That's what he's saying over and over. Secondly, Christ says, it is like Noah's flood in that the wicked will be caught unaware and unprepared and will be swept away in judgment. Third, the righteous must live a life of constant readiness, not surprised or or alarmed by a significant delay, yet aware that Christ could return at any time. Those are three lessons from last week, three very practical lessons. And so the major theme of the rest of this discourse began last week, and that is live a life of constant readiness. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, live a life of constant readiness. Readiness. That's the theme. And he talked about it last 
that we saw last week in, the, in that section of Scripture, and we hit it again this week. And guess what we're going to do next week? We're going to hit it again, all right? Because that's the theme. And what Christ does, like any good preacher, is he has one theme, and he gives three long stories. Okay? So he, he repeats himself. So that's why uh, I feel very much like I'm like Christ in many ways. <laughs> that's probably the only way, and I shouldn't say it that way. All right, so that's the idea. So we looked at two parables illustrating that point last week, and we're looking at one this week. I was going to try to look at both of them and go through verse 30, but then I laughed at myself, and we're only going to go through verse 13. So what do we learn from this parable that we just read? First of all, the parable is given. And what I want to see as we just think about the parable as a whole is that Jesus gives this parable focused on the foolish. This parable is focused on the foolish. It's really interesting here, as he gets to this part of the message, he says, then, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And then does not mean that there's a change in time. Like, first I did this, and then I did that, and then I did that. That is not what this then means. It means at that time. So I cleaned my room, and at that time I also vacuumed, and at that time I also cleaned the bathroom. It's not an order of events. It's what was taking place. So when he says then... Don't read it as a chronological, read it as an understanding of the same time period, when Christ returns, at the return of Christ, between the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 and Christ's return, what will the kingdom of heaven be like? What is the new covenant time period like? So understand that also the word like is a key. This is a parable. So it's an illustration, it's a metaphor, making one clear point, and the clear point comes right at the end, watch. Why? Because you don't know when I'm coming. Watch. If you could predict when I was coming, you wouldn't have to watch all the time up until you could predict it. So you could just lay around and be lazy and do nothing and not worry about anything, don't need any oil for your lamp. Yeah. And I thought he was here. <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> He's here to meet us. Might stay up closer. Don't get too far back there. Anyway, so that's the point is this is a parable, and a parable has a point. Because you don't know the day or the hour, we need to be prepared. Now, a parable is a, an illustration that an audience will quickly connect the dots to. It's like when you're trying to teach your kids a lesson and you're trying to get a point across and then you tell a story to illustrate the point. If the kids don't understand the story, the illustration is useless because it never illustrates the point. So if you try to tell city dwellers and illustrate the point with a farming story, they're not going to get it. So you want to tell city dwellers a city story because then they get the point. The illustration is there. And what is the problem with us is we live at a time period of about 2,000 years since this was written. None of us were raised in Jewish culture, especially first century Jewish culture. We don't have any idea. So this story seems weird to us. I don't know how many times you had torches lately. Our torch is a flashlight. Sometimes we still call it that, a torch. These are not those kind of things. When was the last time you had oil to light your torch? Well, I know some of you have uh, oil that you put, that you burn your candles, oil, right? I don't even know. See, I'm gonna get out of 
I'm going to stop right now. This is not going well. I don't know my own illustration here, so I'll stop. But you get the point. See the problem with illustrations? So we have this story, and it doesn't make sense to us because we don't understand the context. So I'm going to help you understand the context. But before I do that, I want to focus your attention on something. Look at verse 2. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. Typically, in this context, you're going to, as a disciple of Christ, focus on the wise. You're going to look there because you're going to consider yourself one of the wise people. But notice Christ begins with the foolish. He says, first, five were foolish and five were wise. Not five were wise and five were foolish. I think that's important. All right? Then he fo- and then he says in verse 3, what's the focus? On the foolish. For when the foolish took their lamps, they had no oil. And then also the wise. And when the bridegroom comes, the foolish said to the wise. Everything is focused on the foolish first and the wise as a comparison. So this is why I believe this portion of Scripture is definitely written to disciples of Jesus Christ. That's Christ's audience, 24, verse 1, 2, and 3. Disciples of Jesus Christ who are not wise but foolish. And what does, what does Christ show in this parable? It shows that they were foolish and then give them what they should do to respond if they realize that they are foolish. So that's, that's the focus. We're going to break down what the parable means, but let me also tell you, uh, before we apply it, what it means. What's this story? So I'm borrowing from about three different commentators uh, to piece all of this together because, like you, I came to this, and I said, what is this? What, what goes on back then? So here's what it means. The image of the parable accurately reflects typical customs of first-century Palestinian wedding festivities. We're all out of the loop. Normally, the bridegroom with some close friends left his home to go to the bride's home where there were various ceremonies, followed by a procession through the streets after nightfall to his home. So what would happen in those days is almost every marriage, if not all marriages, were arranged. You'd have an arranged marriage. You'd have a contract. You'd sign the contract. You're officially married, but you haven't been brought together and consummated the relationship. So between when the official contract of being officially betrothed Think of uh, Mary and Joseph. And before you came together as a married couple, this is that time period. But then the ceremony that brings that together is when the bridegroom and his buddies, the wedding party, come to the house of the bride. They come and get her. After nightfall, they go back to his house through the streets with torches. And then they have sometimes a week-long festivity of a wedding party. That's the picture. And that's the ceremony here. So what happens here is everyone in the procession, everyone at the the bride's house or in the streets waiting for the procession to come past their house was expected to carry his or her own torch. It's dark, we need a torch. Those without a torch, because they're not invited to the wedding and not prepared for the wedding, would be assumed to be wedding crashers. Maybe even uh, thieves and robbers, bad people. So... Not having a torch is a problem, not just because you're unprepared and you can't see you're going to fall in the street, but because you might be removed from the party because you don't appear to be invited. Therefore, all the bridesmaids have to take enough oil to keep them burning for as long as might be necessary. I've got my torch and I have my oil. I'm not sure when this procession is going to come. I need enough oil for when it does come. I've got to keep my torch lit and be ready to go. These are portable torches for outdoor use. There are a bundle of cloth mounted on a carrying stick and soaked with oil. So think of a stick, 
tie the, the, the cloth around it, you soak them in oil, and then the oil burns and you don't burn up uh, the cloth. The jars, translated flasks in the ESV, had the oil into which the torch was dipped before lighting. So you had to carry a jar and a torch, you dip and then you light, that's how you go, and you have to keep that going when it starts to go out. A torch with a jar of oil, without a jar of oil, was as useless as a modern flashlight without a battery. So if we, Christ was telling the story today, he'd find a way to have a story where you had flashlights and you're playing something outside and then you forgot to bring your batteries and you go to the other people and say, hey, can I have some batteries? And they say, I only have enough batteries for my flashlight. If I give you my batteries, how am I gonna see? See the problem? Same idea, different illustration, um, but we have to understand what the scripture says. So the sensible, the wise virgins, the wise girls now had to re-soak and light their torches while the attempts of the foolish girls to light theirs was, of course, futile. And then, of course, the festivities would last several days, formally underway at the groom's house, so the party would get there, they'd all go in, they'd shut the door, and they'd have the wedding party, and it would last sometimes for days. You don't want to miss out on a wedding feast. Sounds like a good time. So what does the parable explain? It explains what foolish virgins look like, what foolish disciples look like. They are the first mentioned throughout this parable. So this parable is a warning to the foolish. The focus is on the foolish. And secondly, when you explain the parable, it's a warning to the foolish. The foolish are being warned. And remember, these foolish, all of the wise and the foolish are all virgins. They're all the same. There's no difference between the person in, as you would look at them, they're all disciples of Jesus Christ, sitting around Christ, professing faith in Christ. They're all the church, if you want to put it in today's context. So that's the first thing. The virgins are professing Christians. Professing Christians divided into two categories, foolish and wise. Disciples of Christ, two categories. I've already mentioned it, but I'll mention it again. Christ's audience, back in 24, verse 1, the disciples came to him, and there's a key word there, privately. Sometimes you'll see Christ teaching his disciples, but then there's crowds. This time, it's Christ and only disciples on the mountain, and that group of disciples, I believe, is bigger than apostles. Sometimes in the scripture, disciples and apostles are kind of interchangeable. It's hard to tell. Is it just the 12, or is it the 12 plus? I, I think definitely here it's more than the 12. Definitely the 12, but more than the 12. It's bigger than that. It's, it's a group of disciples, but it's a private lesson for only those who are disciples of Christ. In the parable, then, if the virgins are professing Christians, the bridegroom is Jesus Christ. The bridegroom is Jesus Christ. This follows along with every parable. So in the first parable, uh, Jesus Christ was the thief who comes when you're not prepared. In the second parable, Jesus Christ is the master who comes back from a long journey. You have to be prepared to give an account. Here we have Christ as the bridegroom coming and you must be prepared. Notice that Christ takes on, in a sense, in the story, illustrated by different people, different positions. Notice then, as we think about this, that the only and vital difference between the virgins is the foolish brought no, oil, no jars of oil with them and the wise did. One difference in the story. Now notice in parables that they typically have one main point. And therefore the main point is highlighted by the main difference. There's only one difference. Do you have a jar of oil or not? That's the only way to tell the difference in the story between the wise and the foolish. 
And that's why when I went to camp as a child, we sang the song, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, burning, burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Because if I lost the oil, I wasn't a Christian. But none of you knew that when you sang it, but that was where the song comes from. Anyway, I just bring you into my weird thoughts when I'm preparing messages. That's what came to my head. If you don't know that song, uh, someone will sing it to you after the service. I spared you that this morning. (laughs) So why is that a problem? We've already talked about this a little bit. Why is that a problem? Why is having no jar of oil a problem? Do you see it in the parable? Verse five, as the bridegroom was delayed. You've soaked the oil, you light your torch, you go and wait for the bridegroom because you think he's coming soon. They've invited us to the party, the party's tonight. How long could it take for him to go get the bride and come to the street? Can't be that long. And then as the story goes, what time is it? It's midnight. That probably is too late to start the party normally, I would assume. And so you have this thing. When you don't have this flask, you're unprepared, and that's what makes the foolish foolish. When the bridegroom arrives, when the call comes out, and here's the procession, you are unprepared. You have no more oil, and your torch has gone out. So his midnight arrival is a significant delay. It's also would be assumed to be at an unexpected moment. We don't start these processions at midnight. You know, typically sundown would be before midnight. Get this, get this party going sooner. That's a long time to wait. In the story then, what does oil represent? Oil is spiritual preparation. Oil is spiritual preparation. There is not, oil doesn't represent simply one thing. It doesn't represent faith. It doesn't represent grace. It it doesn't even represent in one sense salvation. It's, It's really a general category in a sense for all of that. It represents spiritual preparation. You are unprepared spiritually. If you go back to the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, there's all these people are brought into the wedding feast, but the one guy without the wedding garment is cast out. You remember that parable? And what what does the wedding garment represent? Does it represent robes of righteousness? What does it represent? Trying to make too much of every piece of a parable can get you into trouble. So I don't want to give you any one thing. It's spiritual preparation. But what does spiritual preparation entail in light of Christ's second coming? So if you were to be spiritually prepared for Christ to return, what would that mean in a general sense? In my understanding, it would clearly entail salvation, but salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'm not telling you that the oil is the grace, the faith, or the, I'm saying all of that is spiritual preparation. Are you prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ? This spiritual preparation represents the fundamental change whereby a rebel sinner is made a child of God. Earlier in Matthew, Christ would explain it this way. It, is, it, it explains people who have entered the straight gate and are on the narrow way of eternal life. Multiple pictures representing spiritual preparation and the change that it entails. These people, these virgins who have this oil have entered into and are a part of the kingdom of God, they have new life. All of those things are what we talk about being spiritually prepared. It's that idea of Christ was to return today. Are you prepared to meet him? How? First of all, are you born again? Have you been 
justified? Have you been redeemed? Have you been saved? Have you been set free? We would talk about all of these components to what it means to having the gift of eternal life and being a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And there's multiple pictures, multiple metaphors. All of those things can be brought in here. It's just spiritual preparation. And when you think about that, then you understand why those who brought no extra oil had run out of oil. What does that mean? It means they are spiritually unprepared, though they claim to be prepared. They are spiritual hypocrites. They are professing Christians who aren't possessing Christians. They are pretending to be a part of the wedding party, but they aren't. It's not external, but internal. They are spiritually unprepared for the coming of the bridegroom. Therefore, the application is they were spiritually unprepared for Christ's return. And so when he does return, these unprepared spiritual people who know enough to know where to go. Think about this. When Christ returns, if you were raised in church, you grew up in church, you heard all this week in, week out for years, and you rejected. When Christ returns, who do you know will have the answer for what you need? All those people that taught you the gospel in Sunday school, taught you that, who raised you, the preachers, the pastors, the, all, they know the answer. They know what you need, and that's where you would turn because now you know where to go. But now, what do we see in the parable? Well, we'll see that in a minute. Notice that they asked the wise for some of their oil, but as we said before, there wasn't enough oil to share. You had to have your own oil. What does that teach us in application? Eternal life is your personal responsibility. You must have your own eternal life. I want to be very careful how I say this. You can't save yourself. That's not what I mean by personal responsibility. You cannot save yourself by works. You cannot save yourself by keeping the law. You cannot, you not, you cannot get yourself saved. You cannot, if you're a drowning person and you're drowning because you can't swim and you're going under and there's no way for you to save yourself because if you could save yourself, you wouldn't be drowning. If you're drowning, you need someone to save you. You cannot save yourself. So they might throw you a, a, a rope. They might throw you, what do you call those circular things? A buoy, thank you, whatever, a life-saving device. They can throw you any kind of life-saving device. They can stick a pole out. They can jump in the water, drag you to shore. Whatever it is, you couldn't, when you got to shore, say, I saved myself. Well, how did you save yourself? I grabbed the rope. Whose decision was it to grab the rope? It was my decision to grab the rope. So did you save yourself? No. <laughs> I grabbed the rope, and I was saved by the means of the rope. I was saved by the means of the buoy. I was saved by the means of the person dra dragging me to shore, and I didn't fight them but it's not me saving myself. So eternal life is your personal responsibility. You must have your own eternal life, but that doesn't mean that you save yourself. In this parable, you have to understand what Christ is doing here. He's telling you that as an individual, you will never be a beneficiary of someone else's oil. You will not benefit from someone else's spiritual preparation. You can't have some of their life some of their oil. You have to have your own eternal life, your own spiritual preparation, because when Christ returns, you will give an account for yourself. And you can't say, well, my parents are Christians. I know a lot of Christians. I'm friends with a lot of Christians. I'm really close to people who have oil. 
You have to have your own. That's the point. You cannot inherit it from your parents. You can't get in to heaven on the family plan. There's no group on. Your own spiritual life in Christ. So that leads us to number two. You must already have eternal life when Christ returns. When the call comes out that the bridegroom is here and come to meet him, there will be no time at that return to repent and believe at that moment. You must already have the oil before the call comes out. You won't have time to go buy some oil now. Don't get caught up in the buying of the oil. In those days, it's about the only way you could get oil. Someone had to buy it. So the idea is you, if you don't have oil, you have to have it when Christ returns. There'll be no time to repent and believe at that moment. Here's the point. There are no second chances. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo. There's no getting out of hell. There's no second chance. When Christ returns, your opportunity is done. So the foolish virgins, they go to solve the problem. But when they return to the wedding feast, what happens? The door is shut. The wedding feast, they're locked out. So what does John MacArthur says? He says, salvation cannot be bought, and the buying of oil from the dealers refers simply to securing salvation from its only source, God. And so these foolish, professing believers, they beg to be let in, but he won't let them. He refuses, just like in the days of Noah. Remember that, that reference? Just like in the days of Noah, everyone enters the ark before the rain falls, before the floods rise. When the rain falls and the floods rise, those who now want to be saved have what opportunity? None. They're locked out. Why is that? Why won't Noah let them in the ark? Now, we all have this picture because we've seen movies and we have an imagination, but it's not in scripture, of people swimming to the ark and banging and saying, please let me in. The Bible doesn't say that. But you can only imagine that that might have been true. But notice what Genesis 7 says about this time. They went into the ark with Noah, two and, and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Who opens the door? The Lord opens the door. Who shuts the door? The Lord shuts the door. When God shuts the door, the door is shut. No one else could get in. And once the rain came and the judgment came, there was no second chance. It's too late. That should be a chilling thought this morning. Chilling thought. The foolish, letter D, are shut out because they have no relationship to Christ. They have no relationship to Christ. What does the bridegroom say? He says, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. I have no relationship with you. You're not a part of the wedding party. You have not been invited to the feast. You're not included. But notice here, not only are the foolish shut out, but conversely, who is shut in? The wise are shut in, just like the ark. There's a lot of pictures here. But notice the deciding difference. The deciding difference is, does the bridegroom know you? Not, do you know the bridegroom? So do you ever have that little thing where you do with your, your kids or your grandkids and they say, you know, do you know Michael Jordan? Of course I know Michael Jordan. I know 
Michael Jordan really well. But the question isn't, do I know Michael Jordan? The question is, does Michael Jordan know me? And some of you are saying, Michael who? Because this is an old illustration because I'm old. So it's not whether I know somebody, it's whether they know me. So just now I'll use an illustration that hardly anybody knows, but I went to a conference and I met James White. I had to wait in line to, get, to meet James White. So I met James White, one of my uh, leading theologians, and I got a picture with James White. Marv Plementosh took the picture. It was really funny. He posted on <laughs> Facebook, look who James White got his picture with, Don Fields. <laughs> yeah, as if it was a great wonder and awesome that James White couldn't wait to meet me. He doesn't know who I am from Adam. I know him. I know him well. I've been listening to him on podcasts for like 20 years, reading books and all those things. I met James White. I know him. He doesn't know me. And so the question is, it doesn't matter how much you know about Christ or how much you know about the Bible. It's does Christ know you? Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the King who's giving this parable? Do you have a relationship with him? Does he know you? Does he know you? Because you're his, you're his child, you're his, you're his brothering, you're the, you're the son of the father. You, you are in this personal relationship. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 7. So back in Matthew, you can look on the screen and you can look at your, your paper. Listen to what it says, what these virgins say, these foolish virgins say in verse 11. They say, Lord, Lord, open to us. In Matthew 7, Jesus taught this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the father who is in heaven. On that day, on the day of the wedding feast, on the day when the door is shut, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus' teaching, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. There'll be Christians, professing Christians on that day saying, Lord, Lord, I went to church. I read my Bible. I prayed. I went on mission trips. Lord, Lord. And he will say, I do not know you. I never knew you. You've had no personal relationship with me whatsoever. And so the question of the hour is, are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? Are you one with him by baptism into death? Have you died with Christ spiritually and been raised with him spiritually? Now, if you're not a Christian or haven't been raised in church, this language seems, it's got to sound weird. What do you mean, in Christ, Christ in you? This is some weird stuff. It won't make sense. But that's an indication of the problem. If you are a believer, if you know Christ personally and intimately, that language does make sense. Christ is in me. I am in Christ. I am united to him. I have a, a personal, intimate, connected relationship with him, and I know it. I'm confident of that. I can explain it. I can show you what that looks like in my life. And if you don't, that's not true then you are a foolish virgin whether you know it or not or can admit it to it or not. And so what's the result? What's the follow-up? What's the therefore? Therefore comes in verse 13. Therefore, get ready now because you don't know when Christ is coming. The watch, therefore, doesn't mean just look out for the bridegroom, but get prepared with the oil. Have your torch and the oil. Watch for the bridegroom. Because you don't know the day or the hour that he's coming. That's what watch means. Some of you here today, you've put off trusting in Jesus alone because you think you have plenty of time. I'm just a kid. I'm just a child. I'm just a teen. I've got my whole life in front of me. 
I'll do that when I get older. I'll do that after I've enjoyed life. I know that being a Christian means I can't do all the fun things I've always wanted to do. I couldn't wait till I grew up and got out of this house with all the rules and all the restrictions so I could live life and enjoy it. I can't wait for that. Don't tell me to become a Christian now because then I won't be able to do all those things. So someday I'll grow up, I'll leave home, I'll live like the, uh, the world for all these years, I'll enjoy everything, and then I'll come back and I'll go to church and I'll trust Christ and I'll be saved and then life will be good and I'll get the best of both worlds. What does Christ say to you this morning, right now, with that kind of thinking? Watch, therefore, because you do not know the day or the hour that I will return. You cannot wait to your deathbed. You cannot wait to the last minute and then sneak in and finally make that decision. And notice in the parable, the longer you put off that decision, the sleepier you get. Well, he's delayed. Well, he's not coming. Well, he might never come. Maybe none of this stuff is true. Maybe all this Christianity is a bunch of bunk. I don't know. That's a sleepiness. But notice in the parable, being sleepy is not the problem because everyone gets sleepy. Even the wise get sleepy and the wise sleep. But notice why the sleep of the wise is different than the sleep of the foolish. The sleep of the wise is not a problem because when the call comes, they're prepared already. They prepared before they took a nap. The unprepared took the nap with not being ready. And therefore, when the call came and they were awakened from sleep, they had no recourse. If you don't have eternal life, why do you live as carefree as those who do? If you're not truly a Christian, why are you so comfortable with knowing that Christ is coming again someday and you're not ready, that you can just kind of lay around and take care of it later. Why are you so carefree if you're not prepared? The Christian who's already prepared, who is already watching and ready, can rest in that confidence of their relationship with Christ. That's the kind of rest here. It's not a sleepy, not paying attention. It's not a laziness. It's a resting in Christ. But the people who aren't in Christ are acting as if they are as if they can sleep or nap as well. They can't. You don't have any time to waste. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. I cry out to you on behalf of your own eternal good. Where's your sense of urgency in coming to Christ? You might die today. Now, I know if you've been in church long enough, you'll hear this regularly. And so I don't usually say it. Why? Because it becomes deadened in its effect because we hear it all the time. But Thad Dvorak, how old is Thad? 28, 30? Healthy, athletic, drops in Walmart on Thursday. Heart stopped. No warning, no sign. They had to get the paddles and get him alive. They had to take him to the hospital. They had to put a tube down his throat to help him breathe. He could have died with no warning. How often 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 3-year-olds, 6-year-olds, car crashes, all these things, do we hear these things and we think, that could never happen to me. You're unprepared. There's no urgency. You could die today and you're not ready and eternity will be eternal. And the punishment is there. 
And by the grace of God, by God's grace alone, you are sitting here and you have an opportunity. You're hearing the message. God opens up that door. And if you foolishly walk away, who will you blame then? God? Your parents? The pastor? The church? You have had multiple opportunities, many of you. And you have not taken it seriously. You have not taken your own eternal life seriously. And I don't get loud just to get loud. I want you to hear the passion and the importance of this moment because your life hangs in the balance. It's that idea, I think it's Jonathan Edwards who preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I believe the picture is this. Your life is but being held by a little thin spiderweb thread over the pit of burning fire. And what will it take to break that thread just one spark and life is cut short? The slender thread is broken. You've heard those kind of songs before, haven't you? Are you prepared? And the people in Jonathan Edwards', Edwards day didn't all respond to the first time he preached it. Maybe the second time he preached it. But one day, God, his mercy brought revival and people heard the message. And by the thousands, they repented because they took life and death seriously. Notice the difference. All this has been about the foolish. Let me take a moment and talk to the wise. The wise are ready for Christ's return and they are ushered into the marriage feast. The wise are ready for Christ's return and they are ushered into the wedding feast, into the marriage feast, the wedding feast, say it however you want. This is the only point given for true Christians and true disciples. You read this whole parable and you say, what's in it if I'm a true Christian? Not much, but that's okay because other people need to hear something today. You can learn a lot. Doesn't mean it's necessarily for you, but here's the point for you. So whoever's doing communion, gather because we're gonna do a little, just a little feasting together today. So let's come around the table. The wise are ready for Christ's return. They're ushered in the marriage feast. Here's the point, Christian. The wise are personally known by Christ because they trusted in Christ alone. And what will they be doing for eternity? They'll be feasting around the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we gather here around the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not a feast, is it? If you think this is a feast, you are sadly mistaken. You've got real problems. But here's the joy. As Christians, we do feast. In fact, I would say this. One of the things I need to learn to do better is learning how to feast now in light of the feast to come. We don't know how to celebrate as Christians. And we don't celebrate the feast here. Go back to 1 Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians 11. I always get them confused. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11. Where they, they had the love feast and they got confused with the love feast and the Lord's Supper. And confusing those two can really throw you off. So when we have the potluck, let's feast in light of the wedding feast to come. But when we have the Lord's Supper, it's different. But this is, this is just a taste of the great feast to come. And as Christians, you will feast with Christ for eternity. You'll feast with the bridegroom as his bride for eternity. We have a great feast awaiting us, and we are, should be the most joyful, excited, happy, celebratory people. And when we celebrate, we should celebrate as those who will one day celebrate for eternity. So our potlucks should be even better than they have been. Better food, more food, so much food that it hurts. And then eat some more. Now, you don't live like that. Feasting isn't for every day. <laughs> but we, when we feast, we should feast because there's a feast to come. 
Our feasting isn't here. Our party life isn't here. We can party here because there's a greater party to come. The world, why do they have to party now? There'll be no other party. They have to get what they get now because there's nothing left. There's nothing to look forward to. We celebrate and feast now for what we look forward to to come. This is just but a foretaste of glory divine. Just a foretaste. So when we taste, we need to taste and see that the Lord is good to us and then go home and feast. But just a taste here. That's the good news. Let's wrap up. I know some of you are wanting those blanks filled in. So if you're not a believer, or if you are a believer, for all disciples here, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself. This call to examination happens regularly throughout the scripture. This is a warning for all of us, including the one preaching to you, to check your salvation. Are you a wise virgin or a foolish virgin? Are you truly prepared? Examine yourself. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Who's this written to? It's written to the church at Corinth. It's written, written to disciples, written to Christians. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Do you realize that Christ is in you? Do you know that Christ is in you? That's true, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The test is, is, is this Christ in you? If you're a believer, he's in you. If, he's not a, if you're not a believer, he's not in you. Have you tested yourself to know whether that's true or not? follows right along with what Christ said. And if you're a believer and you've tested yourself and you're confident and you know it, lastly, live expectantly of the coming of Christ. Live expectantly of the coming of Christ. This is a moment to live expectantly. We take this supper remembering the Lord's death until he does what? Until he comes. We remember the Lord's death when? Until he comes. What do we believe about this? He's coming. I take this expectantly. I take this with joy. I take this to remember what he's done for me on the cross and what's going to happen when he returns. And this piece of, of bread and this, this, this fruit of the vine is just a taste. It's not the feast. The feast is to come. Glory, hallelujah. So let's celebrate the Lord's Supper today with both parts, looking backward, being grateful for what Christ has done for us on the cross, forgiveness of our sins, and looking forward to his return and the feast that awaits us. But that's only for believers. So if you're a Christian here today, you've repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, and secondly, you follow the Lord in believer's baptism, so this is for those who've been baptized, baptized believers, then celebrate with us. If that's not true for you, either you're not a Christian or you haven't been baptized, then let the, the elements pass. And um, so we're gonna take some time to prepare to focus our thoughts, um, to celebrate.